Good morning. Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Good morning. Please be seated. Thank you. What I love most about Anglican liturgy, what we're doing here today, is that it keeps us grounded in the Bible. If you look at your bulletins, you're, of course, going to see the lessons. We read a large chunk of Scripture every time we gather together. But there's a lot more. Did you know, and many of you probably do, that 80%, at least 80%, of all of the words found in the Book of Common Prayer, and therefore in every liturgy that we perform, is a direct quotation from the Bible. Another 10% simply paraphrases the Bible, and then the final 10% contains teaching about the Bible. Now, I'm going to do something which, which, which may bother you. I hope it won't, but I've got a prop. I've got a prop here. And you're not going to be able to read this, of course, but I, I think I can point to it and show you um, what, what my uh, illustration is meant to, to show. This is from a 19th century text called The Liturgy Compared with the Bible. And it actually goes through the entire Book of Common Prayer. And it shows you how every single statement found in the Book of Common Prayer is backed up by either as a quotation or a paraphrase of the Bible. And so this is an example of morning prayer. You can probably see these little scribbles here on the left. Those are the words of morning prayer. And they go simply like this. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, so forth and so on. Just the very first line. Over here on the right, this very long column, it's everything in Scripture that is summed up, quoted, or paraphrased in the Book of Common Prayers, morning prayer service. And it goes on so that this text from the 19th century actually goes through the entire Book of Common Prayer showing how every single word in it uh, is tied to the Bible. And what this means, of course, is that when we gather together to worship, we're just worshiping using the words of God. His words become our words. Just recently, I heard a popular Reformed preacher declare that Anglican worship, as far as he can tell, represents the very pinnacle of biblical Christ-centered worship. And this was not an Anglican. The Book of Common Prayer and the liturgies that we celebrate when we gather together are among the finest devotional materials ever created in the history of the Christian faith, both in terms of style and in terms of substance. Now, I don't say any of this because I think we need to become puffed up or because we want to claim our superiority. We Anglicans, as you all, I'm sure, know, have our problems like everyone else. You know as well as I do that the Book of Common Prayer, as wonderful as it is, and though it is rich with biblical substance, does not guarantee our faithfulness. Anglicans and Episcopalians, the Church of England, the Anglican Communion all over the world, like all Christians, have a tendency to go astray. And sometimes we go far astray. I suspect, however, that we go astray when we begin to take really important things for granted. When, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, we stop guarding the good treasure that has been handed over to us. So we need to know what is worth treasuring. It's good to know what we do really well, what we really get right, because we don't want to take these things for granted. So we need to know uh, what's worth treasuring. 
And the Anglican liturgy, as I've mentioned, is rich with biblical substance. This is something that we need to understand, we need to celebrate, and we need to protect. But did you know that our liturgies are also patterned biblically? In other words, the Book of Common Prayer isn't just a bunch of Bible passages stuffed together. Instead, there is a clear and deliberate order to the services. And our time together this morning offers a great example, and here's how it works. Now, many of you guys probably know that every time we celebrate the Mass, uh, that we have a communion service, we have what is called the Liturgy of the Word, which is the first half of the service, which includes the readings of the lessons, the confessions of faith, etc. And then we have what's called the Liturgy of the Table, which begins with Holy Communion. But you can also break down our service into smaller parts, and it's typical to break it into four parts. And so we begin with everything that precedes the lessons and the sermons with what's called the gathering. And what the gathering is is a kind of repetition of the beginning of the gospel. So we see in all of our gospel stories that Jesus comes upon the scene and he gathers to himself a group of disciples. Whenever we gather together, everything that we do before the lessons is a kind of reenactment of the beginning of the gospel. After the gathering, we go into what's called the lessons, uh, as we all know. We read from the Old Testament, we read a psalm, we read an epistle, and then, of course, we read from the Gospels. And when we do this, again, we're simply reenacting what has happened in the Gospels before us. After Jesus gathered his disciples, he began to teach them. He took them up uh, on the mountainside, and he, and he gave them a new law. Actually, not a new law, a simply reinterpreted and fulfilled law. He taught them. Our lessons are a reenactment of that. After the primary teaching ministry of Jesus, we begin to prepare for the Passion. And so when we are together and we enter into that part of our service where we celebrate the Holy Communion, we're simply reenacting what Christ did with his disciples in his own Passion. And of course, when we get to the end of our service of Holy Communion, we have a blessing and ascending, which is merely a reenactment of the Great Commission. So what this means is that every Sunday when we gather together, we're, we're entering into a kind of dramatic reenactment of the gospel story itself, uh, which is profoundly biblical uh, and I think kind of cool. Uh, so every Sunday we gather together and we reenact the gospel. We hear the call of Christ, we respond, we settle down to listen to his teachings, we confess our faith and our sins, we give ourselves to him in the Eucharist, and he feeds us with his own living sacrifice. We take our place as members of his body, just as the disciples did before us. Then he bids us peace, and he sends us out into the world, and that is what we are doing here today. So let's not take it for granted. I've found in, in my own life that understanding really well the things that we're doing when we gather together make them more meaningful. This, in my mind, is what it means to do what the Apostle Paul has charged us to do. This is what it means to protect and to keep, to guard the good treasure. If we're simply, re if we're simply doing these things week in and week out without reminding ourselves what it is that we're doing, then, then they begin to lose meaning, uh, and we need to protect ourselves from that. More than this, however, each individual liturgy is set in the context 
of the biblical year, which is also ordered by the gospel itself. And so you guys all know this. We go through the liturgical calendar, uh, and in doing so, we're, we're once again simply reenacting the gospel story. And so Advent is where we hear the words of the prophets, which are preparing us to receive Jesus Christ, who is going to come into the world. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation, Christmas. We go into Epiphany, which, which is the revelation of the gospel to the wise men. Then we go into Lent uh, and a Holy Week and Easter. And year in and year out, there are these cycles that we're repeating. Uh, we, we repeat and reenact the story each Sunday. And this reenactment itself takes place within a broader reenactment of the story. In all of this, we do because we believe that it's important that we identify ourselves with the disciples of Jesus Christ. This story is our story. It's supposed to form our minds. Uh, It's supposed to dwell deeply down inside of us. So here's the point. When we worship together, we hear from God by his word. We also respond to God by way of his own word. God speaks to us, and he gives us the words to use in response. And we do all of this in the context of a calendar of celebrations that keeps us constantly engaged with the biblical story, the word of God. And we should not take any of this for granted. So today I want to focus in on one particular element in our service that can, I believe, easily be taken for granted. So I'd like to talk about the Psalms. We read from Psalm 84 a moment ago, and it's a beautiful psalm, poetic. Uh, And I'll have a few things to say about it in particular here in a moment. But first what I want to do is make sure that we understand the role of the Psalms in general. So my first idea, my first point is pretty simple, and here it is. The Psalms are really important, and and that's it. Uh, In fact, no other book of the Bible has received more attention throughout Christian history than the Psalms. Now think about this. The Psalms are the only book of the Bible that we always read from every single Sunday. And this isn't only true for Anglicans. It's also true of Roman Catholics, of Orthodox, of Lutherans, and any denomination using a Sunday lectionary. Christians all over the world consistently read the Psalms more than any other book. And this has been true for Christians for nearly 2,000 years and true of the Jewish people for much longer. If any of you pray the daily office, the office of morning and evening prayer, then you read the Psalms each day and you read the entire Psalter once through every month. Every priest uh, in the Anglican Communion is supposed, to, is supposed to pray the daily office, if not with other people, then at least individually. I do my best. Uh, it's hard, but I can assure you, in trying to do my best, I read the Psalms a lot. Monks of the Middle Ages prayed the entire Psalter every single week, and many still do, because they, they have seven offices that they pray each day, and each includes Psalms. Before the printing press existed, When very few people owned a complete collection of biblical texts, individual Christians were more likely to own the Psalter than any other book of the Bible. We simply take it for granted today that we can, you know, we can hold a Bible. Um, But this is something that the early Christians didn't have uh, the luxury of doing. Uh, The Bible was extremely expensive because it was handwritten. And so only the very wealthy, only the clergy, um, only the monasteries actually had 
complete Bibles. The individual Christian just had perhaps, perhaps a breviary, uh, perhaps a book of Psalms, maybe something from Isaiah, perhaps a gospel, uh, but they almost certainly did not, con- uh, they did not possess an entire Bible. But what's remarkable is that they often knew the Bible very, very deeply, and the reason they did is because they read it, they prayed by it, they sang it week after week uh, in the context of a liturgy. Um, But why, we might ask, are the Psalms so important? Why read them every day of every week for thousands of years? And that's what the church has done. Uh, And it's fascinating, I think. Why not the book of Isaiah or the Gospel of Matthew? Uh, I'd like to offer several reasons. First, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. They not only reflect the best of Israel's worship, revealing the heart of King David and others. These psalms were prayed by the people of Israel for centuries and are prayed by Jews and Christians to this day. The prophets and the apostles who wrote our scriptures prayed these psalms regularly. Second, the psalms remind us that our part in worship is always secondary and always responsive. It's absolutely crucial that Christians remember that God always speaks first. We receive the word from him, and he draws out and enables our response. This is why we should not take our liturgy for granted. The Anglican liturgy is based upon a fundamental theological insight that far too many people forget. That is, God always speaks first, and God always gives us his word. Jesus Christ, through the testimony of sacred scripture, which becomes our word of response. Jesus Christ is not, the, not only the word of God to us, he is also our word of response to God. That's what the incarnation means. That's what our Bible is fundamentally about. The Bible is meant to be both God's word to us and, and also, and, and just as importantly, the wellspring of any response we offer to God. And so the Psalms remind us of this truth very visibly. Worship is a kind of dialogue that God initiates, and the Psalms also offer an illustration of this fact. Eugene Peterson explains it like this. He reminds us that, uh, and here I'm quoting, the first word is God's word. We are never the first word, never the primary word. This massive, overwhelming previousness of God's speech to our prayers, however obvious in Scripture, is not immediately obvious to us simply because we are so much more aware of ourselves than we are of God. But the language of God is spoken into us. Our words are always a response. Third, if we take them seriously, the Psalms force us to deal with the true condition of our own hearts. Sometimes, if things are well with us, this can be a positive experience. Consider Psalm 84 which we read a little while ago. It begins like this. How dear to me is your dwelling, O Lord of hosts. My soul has a desire and a longing for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh rejoice in the living God. A psalm like this can remind us that we are made for God and that we find our true rest in him. It may even give words to the way that you really feel right now. But it's also possible In fact, I think it's more likely that you have to lie to say these words. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever prayed the Psalter here in church and thought, you know, 
I'm not really feeling that today. I think if you actually paid attention to the words that you were saying, and if you're anything like me, and I may genuinely be worse than all of you, uh, then, you, then, you, then you should, I think, feel a bit of a disconnect and think, you know, I just, I'm, not, I'm not feeling that. Why am, I, why am I praying that? I mean, what if you've been fighting with your spouse all morning and did your best just to get to church at all? I know that never happens. What if throughout the whole service your kids are whispering to each other and to you, driving you crazy? And although they probably aren't bothering anyone else, you think they are. Are you really longing for the courts of the Lord as you pray through these psalms? Is your flesh really rejoicing in the living God? Or consider Psalm 63. It it goes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Very often when I pray a psalm like this, I just think, ugh, you know, uh, this isn't true for me right now. Because very often, if we are honest, the psalms will confront us with our own emptiness. And we should let them do so. They're supposed to do so. If we're feeling empty, I can assure you, it's not a surprise to God. We should just fess up, and the psalms should help us do that. At other times, the psalms are are simply too emotionally dark and vengeful. Take Psalm 143, for instance. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. Or how about this from Psalm 137, which thankfully we don't actually pray in church. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. What can it possibly mean to pray these words as our own? Are any of you righteous enough to think that God should destroy your enemies? I have some students who drive me crazy, and sometimes my own kids, not Claire, uh, of course, the only one here. Uh, But I won't pray that God destroys them. I don't think these words can ever be my own. There'd be something terribly wrong for me or with me uh, if I tried to make these my own words. This brings me to my next point. Because the Psalms represent the full range of human experiences and emotions, we discover that their words are often foreign to us. When we really try to make them our own, the Psalms have the potential to turn us into liars. They don't always represent our true feelings. But that's a good thing, because worship is really not about our feelings. Again, Eugene Peterson explains this really well. He says, What is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. The Psalms were not prayed by people trying to understand themselves. They are not the record of a people searching for the meaning of life. They were prayed by people who understood that God have had everything to do with them. God and not their feelings was the center. God and not their souls was the issue. God, not the meaning of life, was critical. And this is the key. Jesus Christ is the meaning of the Psalms. Jesus prayed these Psalms. He knew them deeply. He internalized them so that they were part of the formation of his own thinking. The words of the psalmist became Jesus' words in times of celebration and in times of despair. 
There are illustrations or there are allusions to Psalms and direct quotations from the Psalms scattered all over Jesus' many sayings that are recorded in the Gospels. You may know, for example, that when he cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. And when he spoke his final words recorded in the Gospel of John, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting Psalm 31. In the most critical moments of his own passion, Jesus makes the psalmist's words his own. And when he does, he gives them a much deeper meaning. Jesus, you see, fulfills the psalms. He gathers them up into his own life, and he bestows on them their true and final and deepest meaning. When we pray these psalms together on Sundays, the best thing that we can do is to keep in mind that we are praying words spoken by Jesus Christ himself. They can always be our words because they belong to Jesus Christ first, and he makes us his own. Dietrich Bonhoeffer explains it like this. He says, A psalm that we cannot utter as a prayer, and I think that happens a lot. A psalm that makes us falter and horrifies us is a hint to us that here someone else is praying, not we, that the one who is here protesting his innocence, who is invoking God's judgment, who has come to such infinite depths of suffering, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He is who is praying here, and not only here, but in the whole Psalter. The Psalter is the prayer book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. He prayed the Psalter, and now it has become his prayer for all time. So I hope you won't think this is too gimmicky. I had a prop, uh, now I have a gimmick. Uh, But I'd like us to read Psalm 84 again, responsibly. And as we do, remember these things. In praying the Psalms, we join our voices with all of God's people who've lived through the ages and all over the world. But more importantly, remember that these are the words of Jesus Christ. He is our high priest and the sacrificial lamb and the very word of God that creates and redeems us. So be confident that, that, we, that these words that we speak are true, not because they represent our feelings, they may or they may not, but because they are God's word spoken by Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so read with me responsively again uh, by half verse. I'll begin. How dear to me is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. The sparrow has found her a house and the swallow a nest where she may lay her young. Happy are they who dwell in your house. Happy are they, happy are the people whose strength is in you. Those who go through the desolate valley will find it a place of springs. They will climb from height to height. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.